0: Open your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians, open your app, open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, download the app right now. Somehow get to Colossians chapter 1. This book, not your cell phone, but this book. Now, it's okay if you have a cell phone, the Bible app on there. I do, I use it often. This book, what did we learn in advance? Remember? This book is about who? This book is principally about who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, we might say, predicts Him. The Gospels present Him or portray Him. And the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, portrays Him. This book, this Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus in John 5 says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is thee that what these that testify about me. You think that it's in the Scriptures you're going to find in eternal life. No, it's in the Scriptures that testify about me. What's he talking about there? The Gospel of John? <laughs> no, that's not going to be written until sometime later. What's he talking about? The Old Testament. The prophets. It's this book that is about him. We know the New Testament is about him, but we understand also that the Old Testament's about him. Acts 8. 35, who can forget when Philip opened his mouth to the Ethiopian eunuch and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus. Scripture is really about Jesus, isn't it? That's profound. I I know we might say that or admit that often, but to say that this book is principally about the Lord Jesus Christ is really something. This series, this semester that we're going through is principally about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going from a number of events. Our staff was calling it eventology, the study of events. We feel like we've been through uh, Catapalooza, Kickoff, Barbecue, Advance 314, Gold Rush, all these wonderful times together. But now we're in the mainstream. We're back in the riptide of cross life. We're back in the regular Thursday nights. And I want to remind you that this semester, this study, this time is devoted principally to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to study tonight, amen? And what better place to go than Colossians? Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Follow along as I read. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pause for prayer. Lord, we pray tonight that you'd make the book live to us, that we wouldn't search it merely for information, but that you would clearly, uh, coherently understand, help us to understand through the preaching of your word, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and through all of it, that he might receive the glory due his name. We beg this, we pray this, we ask this together through his name. Amen. Well, first some uh, some context to bring us up to speed in Colossians. If you've been in a community group, you don't need content or context because you've been studying it, haven't you? It's convenient that we arrive, we didn't necessarily plan it this way, but we arrive in the text that you're going to study this next week in community group, which means this week you studied the text leading up to it. Neat, isn't it? In fact, I was, as I was thinking about this and saying this, uh, please don't hear this the wrong way, but I kept thinking, how could you not be in a community group or a Bible study? And as I say that, I don't mean, I don't mean to be harsh if you're not, but I just can't imagine. I know a man in college who was in Bible study Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, you went to ministry. Friday night, and I don't recommend that. <laughs> I don't commend that at all. But I can't imagine not wanting to be in and around in close proximity to other believers to study what we're going to study tonight. But for the, uh, for the benefit of those who aren't in community groups regularly, I want to bring you up to speed with Colossians. Okay, Colossians starts, and Paul is the author and he's writing to the church at Colossae. I remember Michelle, I was talking, we were talking a ways back. We were both raised in small liberal churches and we didn't realize (laughs) that the epistles or the letters in the New Testament were actually letters to churches. You ever realize that? Remember when that kind of light came on? Like these aren't just fanciful stories. This is an actual author writing an actual book to an actual church. And he's writing it for a purpose. Oh, What is that purpose? Well, it's not easy to unfold that or to recreate that, but we can understand at least at some level that Paul was refuting error. Now, it could have been Gnosticism, a belief that spirit is good and material is evil, a a false dichotomy of dividing soul and spirit or of uh, dividing material and spiritual. Uh, Gnosticism taught that Jesus was not God, but a created being from distant emanations from God. They didn't believe God would create because material or matter was evil. So they believed that distant emanations from God created matter and one of those good creations was Jesus. It could have been that or it could have been simply a mingling of the paganism of the culture with the truth. The goddess Cybele, we're going to name our daughter that until I found out that it was a goddess in Colossians. No, I'm joking. We weren't going to name that. The goddess Cybele was being worshipped in and around uh, Colossae. So there was this paganism that was going on. Paul might have been refuting some of that area uh, or some of that doctrine. Cybele was whipping people. The doctrine was about ecstatic states, this hyper-emotionalism. It was mixing truth with the error of the culture. It could have been Montanism, which advocated freedom from the responsibilities of daily life and rigorous fasts and penance. You know what penance is? Trying to atone for your sins yourself could have been advocating those things to get rid of sin. Montanism. Sounds like Montanaism, doesn't it? <laughs> like we've created our own religion. <laughs> Whatever ism it was, we don't know for sure. We do know that Paul was refuting error in Colossae. Now, why do I tell you all this? Is it to be over-technical or to take you into the place of Colossae? Well, in some ways, I want it to help you. I tell you it because I want it to help you understand the text better. Why Paul is writing what he's writing. I tell you also because not much has changed since Paul penned this letter, has it? These heresies sound all that different from what we see today. Whatever it was, like every heresy since, it toyed with the person of Christ, even dismembered true doctrine, true person in work of Jesus Christ. It diminished his deity. It stole from his sufficiency. It dismembered his supremacy. This dealt a vital and deadly blow to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul meant to deal with it and to deal with it fast. And so right at the beginning of Colossians, he starts in strong. It's difficult for us to reconstruct or understand this exact error, because Paul, partly because Paul spends so much time enforcing truth, not merely refuting untruth. You see what happened there? Paul spends most of his time enforcing truth, not dealing with untruth. That's what we're going to do tonight. But if you look at the verses prior, that's verses 13 and 14, you'll see how we transition into verse 15. Look at verse 13, talking about Jesus. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you look at these verses, you'll see and notice how Paul often transitions into rich theological truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He starts off with just mentioning his person in theology, and then he goes into praise and doxology. It's almost like in Paul's mind they're never apart. Theology and doxology, that is worship and praise and thanksgiving, are never far apart in Paul's letters or in his thinking. It's my prayer that they'd never be far apart in ours. His person and his praise should be inseparable. It's Like I can't improve on what Rick Holland said last weekend. Jesus is amazing. Are you amazed? It's obvious to me that Paul was amazed. It's obvious as you read through his letters that he was taken aback again and again with the person of Jesus Christ. Every time he started to talk about him, it's almost like he explodes beautiful truth about him. This text is no exception. So as tonight, as we look about, as we look at one of the paramount scriptures about Jesus, It's my prayer that our eyes would be fixed on him and our minds would be set to behold the glory of him and the certainty of his person and work this evening. Verse 15, this first section as you see on your outlines there is the Lord of creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Text says he is the image. That is to say the icon is the word there. He is the stamp or the exact representation of God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4 4, where Paul writes, in their case, uh, he's talking about the, the people who are blinded and can't see unbelievers. It says, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is, remember what it says? The image of God. Christ is the image of God. Uh, God is invisible. It doesn't take much New Testament study to understand that. 1 Timothy 1.17, other places. We know, we've established that God is invisible. But in Hebrews 1.3, like we read earlier, we understand this, or we see this, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And get this, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does it say about Jesus? He is the exact imprint of his nature. The language portrays the engraving uh, that you would have on wood, an exact stamp in clay or a brand on an animal. I remember growing up on the ranch we grew up on, we'd take this brand, and you've been around this, we would brand cattle and it would leave always the exact same imprint, representation of the brand on the animal. text also says he's the firstborn. The firstborn. How are we to understand this? Well, Paul included this word in here, again, to dispute a heresy. Not to mention, not to help us understand that he was the firstborn in the sense of chronology. We know that Jesus wasn't the firstborn. That's nonsensical. It was Adam, or you might say Cain, who was the firstborn of a woman. He couldn't have come into existence. He was the Alpha and the Omega, and so it doesn't make any sense for him to be first in chronology, But Greek and Jewish culture taught that the firstborn was the ranking son. Not always the oldest son, but the highest ranking son who had received the right of inheritance. So whether he was oldest or not, whether he was first chronologically or not, he was the highest ranking. Uh, The term was used of Israel in the Old Testament, though it wasn't the first nation. Certainly, it was the first in rank. So Paul probably borrowed this word from his upbringing, using the word to express someone who's especially honored or who is notable, or the person who should receive attention. He's the firstborn. It's as if Paul is saying again, like he did in Romans 11, from him, through him, to him, are all things. If this firstborn language is true, you'd expect to see it in other places, wouldn't you? Uh, Turn with me back in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms. Put your finger in Colossians 1 and turn to Psalm 89. I think it's really important for us to understand this language because cults nowadays will use this language to teach that Jesus was born or that he was created. That's certainly not what Paul's getting across. And you see that in Psalm 89, verse 27, where it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I'll make him the firstborn. It's talking about David here. The highest of the kings of the earth. Does that mean that David was the first king chronologically? You know anything about the Old Testament, you know that's not true. But we do understand that the David was, what's the text say? The highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the highest. He is paramount. He is preeminent. Jesus could have not been the created because he is the creator. That's nonsensical. The more you study this passage, the more we get into it, the clearer that gets. He is the highest rank. He has received the highest inheritance As the firstborn. Listen to what Calvin says. We must be careful not to look for him, that's God, anywhere else. For apart from Christ, whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn out to be an idol. Don't look anywhere else. You want to understand who God is, what he's like? Don't look anywhere else. Look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 16. For it's by him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible in invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now Paul states the grounds, Christ grounds for his dominion. He made it. He owns it, he says, by him. He's the active agent in creation. Now Matt talked about this about two weeks ago, where he was talking about the, pre, the pre-incarnate existence of Christ. Christ was before all things. He created all things. Remember what John 1.3 says? All things were made what? Through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Is that exhaustive? Without Him, not anything was made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for uh, whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were and through whom all things exist. This be any more clear in the text? Jesus created all things. He brought about all things. Let me tell you the key to unlocking, the secret key to unlocking this text. I tell you a secret, it's understanding this, what the word all things means in Greek. You remember this? You might want to write this in your Bible, right beside the word all things. It's really important. You ready? The word all things in Greek means all things. You write that in. You don't have to write it in. It's already in. You see what I did there? I set you up. I saw some of you were like, oh, this is a good one. I'm going to get All things. The text is clear. You don't need to understand Greek to understand this. All things. Jesus created all things everywhere. It's as clear as it could be, but in comprehensive mood and language, Paul elaborates further. First, by describing the locality of what all things are or the place. He says on heaven or on earth. What's he saying? Everywhere. Not only mankind, but every created thing from uh, tadpoles to Tyrannosaurus rex, from bacteria to the behemoth in Job. Everything that you can imagine, everything that you can think of, exhaustively was created by and for Jesus Christ, whether in heaven. Or on earth. Next, he mentions optically, what we can see or not see, material or immaterial, visible or invisible. Jesus created both body and soul, soul and spirit. He created joints and marrow. He created created everything. He created what we can see, he created what we couldn't see. He created material, he created immaterial. Jesus created all things. Whatever their perceivability by human senses, Jesus created them. Their source is one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, Paul gives the Jewish order of angels. This is kind of interesting. I didn't understand this when I first started studying this. But he says here, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. This includes good angels and evil angels. Includes good superpowers or supernatural powers and evil supernatural powers. Look at, if you're back in Colossians, you should be because we just went to verse 16 from Psalms. But look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is where Paul celebrates Jesus' triumph on the cross. And he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So there are evil supernatural powers that aim to deceive, to destroy the human race. And they've been decisively defeated at the cross where Jesus disarmed them and made His people completely secure through faith in Christ. This is to say that these things are the uh, the angelic hierarchy. Okay, they, uh, oh, why does Paul mention this? I don't want to get so detailed that we just get lost in every little thing. But you're already in chapter two, verse fifteen. Look at verse eighteen. You'll see there that they had a problem with angel worship. Let me get back to Colossians two eighteen. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions that he's seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Worship of angels. The classy people, the classy Christians were confused and some of them were even worshiping angels. You think, that's wild, I'd never do something like that. That's what I thought too. Do you know that in college when I was playing football, a well-meaning friend gave me a pennant. And uh, he was on the team with me and he was a Catholic good friend and he gave me this pennant that talked about an angel that was going to protect me. You say, Tanner, you didn't bow down to that angel. No, I didn't. But I'd wear it around my neck for symbolism, kind of as a protective thing. Now I wore it to be cool too, not because it was cool, but because I thought it was cool. We're not that far removed. Not much has changed. Since Paul was beheaded, not much has changed since Paul wrote this letter. We're still confused. If if you're on Facebook at all, it doesn't take more than about a day to see someone sharing a post about a protective angel. If you share this with three people, so-and-so is going to protect you. You say, that's just silly. Is it? Is it? It's replacing the character and work of God with angels. And that's what the people at Colossae were doing. And so Paul says... That Jesus created those things. He's above those things. That's what Hebrews spend so much time on. Finally, at the other book end of the verse, back to verse 16, in utter, again, comprehensive attitude, he says, again, all things were created, what? By him. Remember our key to the text? Ta-panta. That's the word. All things. All things. It's not, uh, that's not that we were also created for him. That's not all, I should say. that It's not all to say that He created us. The text goes on to say we were created for Him. That is to say for His good pleasure. It's not that all these things immediately give Him praise, but that's was, that is their design. That's our design. That's our function. We're not an end, but a means to point to the sun. We all exist to please, to magnify, to lift up the sun. All are meant to serve His will and to contribute to his glory so whatever it is whether his most malicious enemy or his most jubilant servants all things are created by him and for him barnes puts this well when he says the universe was built by the creator to be his own property to be the theater get this on which he would accomplish his purposes and display his perfections do you catch that language The universe was built by the Creator to be His own property, to be the theater on which He would accomplish His purposes and display His perfections. You want to know what the earth was for? It's His theater. It's His showplace to display His glory, His purposes, His perfections. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's before all things. You know John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was in the beginning. You remember John 8.58, what Jesus says there, before Abraham was, what is it? I am. I was in Jerusalem. I'm sure I've told you the story about when I was there a while back. Uh, It was three, four years ago now and I talked to a young Jewish man and we were discussing the Gospel and Jesus as Messiah and some things. And I said to him, just out of curiosity, I said, What would you say? What would someone say in Jerusalem if I walked up to them and said, Before Abraham was, I am? I explained what that was. I think maybe that's all I said. Before Abraham was, I am. You know what he said? He said, They'd probably kill you. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? And what the Pharisees tried to do to Jesus. When he said, Before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be the great I am. He was at the beginning. He was before all things. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was at the beginning. All things hold together, the text says, or endure. That is all things. What's the key to unlocking the text? Knowing the the Greek word all things means all things. All things. On a microscopic level, on an atomic level, neutrons, protons, electrons, even, remember what the smallest ones are? Quarks. Even quarks. On a micro level, On a macro level, all things are held together by him. The planets, the solar systems, the Milky Way, everything that stretches into all of existence, it's held together by him. As has been said, it's because of Christ that we have cosmos, not chaos. He holds all things together. Listen to this quote. No matter what human research learns about the what of the natural world, the why is ultimately found in God's Son. Christ not only sustains the universe, but also upholds it. He upholds it in a spiritual sense. His work of redemption brings together sinful people and a holy God. I believe, Christians, that we do ourselves a serious disservice when we pit this against science or science against this. Good science agrees with what is being said here. Jesus upholds all things, He is in all things. How'd you get into this, Tanner? How'd you get off on this tangent? Jesus is at the center of everything. In him, in him, all things. What things? All things hold together. He upholds them by the word of his power. Uh, I was thinking, Andrew, you remember, where are you, Andrew? Remember that guy we were talking to on campus a couple weeks ago? He's a senior in physics. And we we're sitting with him over lunch, and we were talking to him, and. Uh, God got brought up, and it was so interesting to me, without any church background or hardly any church background. You know, he said, He said, I've gone from a place of total disbelief in atheism and believing there's no God through semesters of study in science and physics to believing there is a God. Apart from any outside influence, only studying science. Now, science isn't an end in itself, is it? No, it's a means to point us to the glory of Christ. That was fascinating to me. Not altogether surprising to me. In Him, all things hold together. All true knowledge, all real science, all real understanding points to and points back to the person of Christ. Certainly we've discovered He's Lord of all creation, but what about recreation? Christ is also Lord of recreation Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The head of the body, you know, makes the decisions. It's the head that directs and controls our body. It steers and directs even where growth happens. It is the control center. As an aside, just as an aside, something for you to think about. This is why I think wise men often say, often avoid saying, it's such and such is church. Oh, that's uh that's you're talking about Matt Chandler's church. Oh, you mean Mark Dever's church? Oh, you must be talking about John MacArthur's church. You're talking about Tim Keller's church. No. You might be talking about the church that they pastor at or the church that they serve at, but God forbid we should ever think that any church is anyone's but Christ's alone. It stings my ears when I hear someone say that's Tanner's ministry. God forbid. It's not my ministry. It's God's ministry. I'm simply a servant of him and of you. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. This isn't hard to understand if we think back to what we've just learned about earlier, the word firstborn. If you're taking notes, you can cross-reference Acts twenty six twenty three. You remember this. Paul is making his defense before Agrippa. He's given his testimony. He says that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. What's he saying? He's the firstborn from the dead. That's the exact language he uses. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? No, not by any stretch. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He can't be the first to rise from the dead, but in among those who raised from the dead, who were raised from the dead, he is preeminent. He is the highest rank. He is first over all. He is supreme over those who have been raised from the dead. He is supreme over creation. But his resurrection made him first in respect to his church. So he is not only preeminent in being raised from the dead, but the text con- continues, he is preeminent in everything. Listen, by rising from the dead, Jesus spiked the ball. Game, set, match. It was over. Salvation accomplished. Redemption finished. Jesus has always reigned supreme, ruled supreme, but now we recognize in a special way he rules over what he's redeemed and restored because of his resurrection, because he was first born from the dead. In everything, look at, in everything he is preeminent. He He has the paramount rank. He is outstanding in importance. He reigns supreme over everything. When we try to describe this, when we try to wrap our minds around it, we just run out of language, don't we? Jesus is Lord over all. He is the preeminent one. He is supreme. That's why Cooper said, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign all, does not cry, mine! Christ is supreme over every square inch of what he's created. He owns it. What things? All things. He is supreme over all. Christ ought to be supreme in our schoolwork. He ought to be first place in our recreation. He ought to be first place in our Thursday nights. Not by order and priority in an absolute sense. Uh, not in the sense that I organize. I don't organize my life into, say, God Family work. Rick said last week, and it's not that God, it's not that Christ is above all things. It's that he's first place in all things. So Christ is first in my worship of God. Christ is first in my study of God's word. Christ is first in my work here at the church. Christ is first in my marriage and my recreation. I pray that he is. He's not always, but I pray that he's first place in all those things. He's not a part of your life, but he is the point of your life he is intricately tied to everything that we do think about it this way uh, where do you work i'm brave enough to say where they work they're really excited about it where do you work shout it out seriously none of you work you are all lazy <laughs> where do you work the airport. the airport at the airport he is first over everything do you direct planes? No. no. That's what my wife used to do. She'd say, get off. Send them off. What do you do? <laughs> work in a coffee shop in the airport. When you make coffee, Christ is supreme overall. You make that coffee to the glory of God. <laughs> Where do you work? Montana State residence life. Montana State residence life. Christ is first place in every resident's life. He is first place in everything, in everything that you do, every operation of order there. Is he not first overall? Where do you work? Tell me another one. Front desk. desk, Hallelujah. Is Christ first place in your work there? Yeah. As you interact with people, do you show off Christ? Do you display Christ in your works? I know you pray to. I know you hope to. I I know a man who uh, washed walls downtown. He washed walls to the glory of God. When other people were slacking off at their work at the front desk, in the residence life, at the airport, washing walls, we ought to be most of all washing walls, talking to people at hand and working at the airport, making coffee to the glory of his name. I know a man who would go around in a semi and he'd load up all the old tires at the tire places. and He'd roll them out from Tire Ram or Costco. He took that job seriously. He rolled tires out and he stacked them in those semis to the glory of Christ. That Christ might be first place in everything. In everything, whatever you do. I don't care what it is. I only care. And you should care that Christ is first place in it. That as you work, you show off. That you wash that window. That you brew that coffee. That you kick that ball. Whatever you do, that you do it For the glory of his name, that you raise that child, that you love that person, that you teach that subject, that you tutor that student, that you check out those groceries, all for the glory of Christ. Do you see how this is intricate with everything that we do? This isn't just some deal or doctrine out there. No, this affects everything that we do. We can't go on living or breathing without thinking about or enacting how Christ is how he's preeminent in everything. Verse 19: For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, what does this mean? How should we understand that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him? Surely all believers, aren't all believers filled with the Spirit of Christ, God's Spirit? Yes, aren't we all made in the image of God? We are. But that image has been marred and corrupted by sin. It was never perfect in total to begin with. But in Christ, get this, Christ contains the total essence of God's nature and authority. In Christ, all the fullness was pleased to Dale. To say it another way, there is nothing in God's character attributes that is lacking or is diminished in Christ. Paul, interestingly, I think, does a wordplay here. He uses the word fullness, which was a popular term used by the Gnostics, that group that we talked about earlier, who claimed to possess the secret supernatural special knowledge that you had to have to be saved. It was a word that they used to refer the combination of all supernatural influences. But look at what Paul does here. He borrows that word, and he uses it to elevate Christ above all other religious influences ideas, and systems. Christ is above all. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As opposed to the Gnostic system of all saving power, all of God's nature and attributes reside perfectly and fully in Christ. Their fullness is seen dwelling in Christ. Listen to me when I say that Christ is indisputably a member of the Godhead. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells. Not partial, not limited, not restricted, not developing, not evolving, not diminishing. All fullness, full fullness, fullness that is full, complete fullness, absolute fullness. Jesus is God. This is the creed that has tied all of Christian faith together down through history. Jesus is God. This text is far from murky, isn't it? Paul's doctrine it's, is clear. Its implications are inescapable. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. He is preeminent over all. He is lifted up above all and over all. There's no other suitable way to understand this. The only question is, having understood this through the text, what will you do with it? Once you realize that Christ is supreme, that he's lifted up, that he is preeminent, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, there's no going back. You can't forget that. You can't unrealize that Christ is God. The only question is having realized that, having been taught that, having understood that from Colossians 1, what will you do with it? Will it affect how you brew coffee? Will it affect how you operate at Hannon? Will it affect how you wash cars? Will it affect how you live? Will it affect your eternity? You bet it will. If Christ is God, if He is supreme over all, then the only appropriate response to Him is total and complete surrender. It's by this authority. It's by this fullness. That we understand verse 20. Through him, that is Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our study this semester, you know, is on, here's a big word, Christology. The study about Christ or a word about Christ is divided into, I want you to remember this, two things the person, that is, who is Jesus, and the work. That's what he's done. The first verses here, first things we've covered tonight, have been about his person. Verse 20 is about his work. What is his work? See it here in the text. Reconciliation. Reconcile to himself all things. God has reconciled to himself all things in Jesus Christ. First, we understood that Jesus made all things. Now, as his as their owner, though they were Alienated, we, we might as well say we. Though we were alienated, away from, opposed to God, He has reconciled us to Him in and through Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter two again, verse thirteen. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. He reconciled all. Things Is this comprehensive? How many times have we seen this word all? You mark it in your Bible. I took time to do it in mine. This is our seventh all. All things. How has He done it? The text tells us He made peace where there was war by the shedding of His blood on the cross. Look at the two verses following this. We won't dive into them, but they're there in the text. You can look at them verse 21 and 22. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He's reconciled us in His body through His flesh. You know Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You probably remember seven verses later in verse 8. But God showed His love among us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, though we were alienated, though we were an enemy with God, Christ died for us. He, Him, His. I see 15 in this text. 15 He's, 15 Him's, He's. This text is about who? Jesus It's all His. It's all His. John Piper says about this text, it's probably the most concentrated description of the glories of Jesus in the New Testament. Stott says about this text that it represents a loftier conception of Christ's person than is found anywhere else in the writings of Paul. This text is big. (laughs) Big. The implications and truths of this text are huge for our lives, Christian. Is there any doubt who this passage is about? Is there any doubt who the book of Colossians is about? Is there any doubt who this Bible is about? If there is any doubt, put it to rest. This book is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you been found by Him? Are you at peace with God through Him? This ministry, this person, I hope you is created by Him and for Him. I I hope you're His. Is what I'm getting at. I, I, I can't put it any more simply than that. We've just talked about the One who is supreme over all things. Lord and King above all. And the only question remaining is, are you His? Do you know Him? i close with this quote by John Owen. It's from a book called The Glory of Christ, one I was trying to read this summer. It's a little bit thick in its language, but I want you to listen closely as I read it. I know it'll be a help to you as it has been to me. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, that is the knowledge of Christ and the gospel, without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions or discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. What is he saying? If you miss this all for the fanciful things that humans have done, human accomplishments, you miss it all. He continues, this therefore deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and the utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness, he's talking about heaven, shall consist in living where he is and beholding his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory revealed in the gospel, that by a view of it, we may gradually be transformed into that same glory. What better preparation for heaven than this? To think, to praise, to worship, to understand, and to glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to get ready for heaven? You want to live faithfully on earth? Meditate, memorize, be absorbed in this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven, And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray. So much more that could be said. So many words go unsaid. So many ideas unspoken about You, Lord. But let us walk away with this. Jesus is preeminent. It's all His. It's all Yours. You are God over all, and so we pray that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation, and as John Owen has eloquently put, that you'd conform us more to the image of your Son. Lord, as we go, may your name, may Jesus' name be slow to leave our thoughts, may it be quick to leave our lips, and may it be long to soothe our consciences and warm our affections in him. It's in him that we pray to you. Amen.